series speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. Well, we've had the opportunity here to thank a lot of people this evening that have made this program a success. And whenever there is a program that takes place like this, often the person up the front gets the most credit for what takes place. But I've worked at both ends of this room and I know that 90% of the success of this program took place at the other end of the room. But above all of that, putting all of that aside, none of this would have happened without Jesus Christ. Isn't that so? Without the Bible, without the message of God's Word, none of this would exist. And so really, He is the one that we must thank. Isn't that so? Let's bow our heads and let's take a moment to thank Him. Father in heaven, we thank You so much for all that You have given to us. It boggles our mind that you would come to this earth, you would give your life so that we could spend eternity with you. And that is the reason that we have been here for all 22 of these presentations, is to learn about you, to learn about your love for us, to learn about just how much you have done for us and that you continue to do for us and the blessings that you so abundantly make available to us. And Father, this evening, as we come to the end of this program, our hearts are overflowing with thankfulness to you. And so we pray that you'll bless us now as we go into this last presentation. Once again, we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit, the presence of your holy angels, that you'll speak to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I've been standing up here while we've been going through a few extra things this evening that we needed to do. And I've been a little bit disturbed the whole time because I've got this picture on the screen about the point of no return and the unpardonable sin and it just makes me feel uncomfortable. Why would you ever want to have anything like that? Who would ever want to have an experience like that? We don't want to go there, do we? No, indeed. And so this evening we're going to find out what is the unpardonable sin? What is the point of no return? And most importantly, we're going to find out how, the, how not to commit the unpardonable sin. Before we do, as we, as we usually do, we're going to start with a symbol We're going to look at one of the ancient symbols from one of the ancient mystery religions of the past. And this time we're going to look at the symbol of the solar wheel. Now the solar wheel is a combination of symbols. You have a cross. Then you have a second cross over the top of it. So that makes it a double cross. Now the double cross, um, when it is combined like this, um, represents a number of things. The male and the female, it represents sexual union. But also you then have it combined with the circle of the sun. And so when you combine a number of different symbols together, it makes a symbol that is more powerful than the others. And so here we have a very, very powerful symbol where a number of them have all been combined together. And of course, this is used by witchcraft today. You find the solar wheel here of witchcraft and all the different um, aspects that go along with it. It, uh, uh, Here's another version of the same kind of concept. Of course, it takes us back to the ancient mystery religions of the past. And so there's a very ancient one going back thousands of years now on a Babylonian altar. Here is the Hindu version of it. There's a Buddhist version of it. Um, Here is a a Shinto version of it. You'll notice in the form of the halo there behind uh, this man's head. Here you find another uh, Shinto god holding it right here. 
Um, you find the Egyptian version of it. And once again, you'll find these symbols, they all have a common origin and they spread throughout the world and it's amazing where you find them popping up. You see, it always disturbs me when you have these symbols from the past cropping up in areas of Christianity. Here you have it over here. It's the same symbol wherever you look. You find it just coming up. Um, Here you have an Indian one or one from Pakistan. There's an Assyrian one. And there's the largest one in the world, if you're wondering where it is. It's right there in um, the St. Peter's uh, Basilica, St. Peter's Square in the Vatican. Um, and you'll find it's marked out by different symbols symbolising the four uh, directions of the, the four elements of the universe, earth, fire, wind and water. And so you wonder why these kinds of symbols have crept across into Christianity. Well, when we look at these kind of symbols and where they have come from and how they have crept across into Christianity, we ask ourselves the question, those who have instituted the use of these symbols within Christianity, obviously they have a very different agenda to followers of Jesus. And they are leading, directing people in a very different path to where the Bible directs us. And so we need to stay close to Jesus because if we take that other path, then we come into the danger of committing the unpardonable sin. And so our question this evening revolves around this unpardonable sin and what is it? Now, of course, there are people who have have come up with many different uh, questions as to what it might be. Some have said it might be murder. Some said, well, maybe it's drug addiction. Others have said it's pedophilia. You see, people start to think, what is the worst thing I can possibly think of to add in here as being the unpardonable sin? Others have said that it might be suicide or some similar thing like that. It's funny, people like to link it up with sexual sins. However... The unpardonable sin is none of these things here. To understand the unpardonable sin, we need to understand some things in relationship to God's attitude towards sin. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 as we begin. And we're going to read about it here in verse 31. Matthew 12 and verse 31. Jesus says this, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. Now that's a pretty serious statement, wouldn't you say? It's one of a number of very serious things that Jesus said when he was here on this earth. And the reason that Jesus says serious things like this is to catch our attention to warn us because he loves us. He says, look, there's many sins, but this one cannot be forgiven. And so the Bible says that it is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, the question that immediately pops into my mind is, blasphemy against the Father and the Son can be forgiven. Why is it worse to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Obviously, there are some implications here that we need to study and we need to find out what is actually going on. Why does the Bible speak about this concept right here? First of all, let's look at God's attitude towards sin. Let's turn over to 1 John. Now, that's down near Revelation. That's the little ones, the letters of John. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. That's page 491. And here the Bible simply says this. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there any qualification to that statement right there? No, it is an unqualified statement. The Bible simply says this. If we confess our sins, he will forgive us our sins. Isn't that so? That's plain. That's clear. God just says that's how it is. So when it comes to the unpardonable sin, the first thing that we find is this. The unpardonable sin is a sin that has never been confessed. Because God doesn't say if we confess all of our sins except for this particular one, we'll be forgiven of them. So we know the unpardonable sin is one that is never confessed. Let's, let's continue in, in, in looking at God's attitude to sin. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. I love this passage over here because Isaiah speaks about sin. He speaks about how sin um, just fills us from one end to the other. In verse 5, he said, Why should you be stricken anymore? Why will you revolt more and more? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. He's speaking here about morally, of course. They have not been closed, neither bound up, nor mollified with ointment. And so the Bible speaks about the natural condition of the human being without Christ that we are full of sin. And so he gives this terrible description. If you, if you think about that passage right there, in, in your mind's eye, you know, covered from head to foot with sores and, and bruises and wounds, it's a really awful picture, isn't it? But then what does God go on to say? Notice what God goes on to say if we come down a little bit further. In verse 18, God says this. He says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And I like this because God says, look, I'm not unreasonable. Come, let's reason together. Let's, you know, let's talk about this. Let's discuss this backwards and forwards. Your sins might be as scarlet, red as blood. He says, but I will wash them and I will make them whiter than snow. And by the way, what is it that Jesus washes our sins in. His blood is the only kind of blood when you wash something in it, it comes out pure white. And that's what God wants to do for every one of us. So if we confess our sins, the Bible says that God will forgive us our sins. He says, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. There is no sin so evil that God cannot forgive it if it is confessed. That's the key right there. So then we ask ourselves, well, how does this actually work? Well, the next thing that we know in relationship to the unpardonable sin is that the unpardonable sin is a sin. That's what it says, doesn't it? It's a sin. What is sin? What does the Bible say sin is? Ah, whereabouts does the Bible say that? Uh, ooh, there you go. First John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, we get a definition for sin right here. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9. Sorry, verse 4. Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So here's a number of things that we know. Number one, we know that the unpardonable sin involves transgressing God's law. Number two, we know that the unpardonable sin is a sin that is not confessed. So how does this then relate to the Holy Spirit? 
How can it be described as being involved in a relationship to the Holy Spirit? Let's look at a number of identifying marks of the unpardonable sin that we can know. Number one, it involves an offence against the Holy Spirit, it involves breaking the Ten Commandments, and it is a sin that is never confessed. To understand the unpardonable sin, then we need to understand some things about the Holy Spirit. Now, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit over the last two presentations, haven't we? We're going to look at some more things. We've been particularly looking at the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But this evening, we're going to look at a few more things. Let's turn over to the Gospel of John this time. The Gospel of John, chapter 14. And we are going to look at the primary function of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, we'll start here in verse 26. In verse 26, the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit and refers to him as the Comforter. He says, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said. So what does the Bible say that the Holy Spirit is going to do in this passage right here? What's he going to do for us? Yeah, before the remembrance, you've got to have something that you can remember, right? He's going to teach us, and how much is he going to teach us? All things. The Bible says the Holy Spirit will teach us all things. And what is his primary textbook? The Word of God. That's right. That's why when we come here, I never open the Word of God without first asking for the presence of the Holy Spirit to guide and to teach me. That's why we pray before we begin. And so the Bible says that he is there to teach us. So we know that the Holy Spirit is going to teach us those things that we need to know. John chapter 16 and verse 13. John 16 and verse 13. It says, Jesus says, How be it, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. So let's put a few things up on the screen. The work and the function of the Holy Spirit is, number one, he is going to teach us the truth. The second thing the Bible says, he is going to guide us into all truth. Now, I like this particular passage here for another reason. I'm going to divert from the subject for just a moment, and then we'll come back, all right? So we're going to sidetrack for a second. The reason that we're going to sidetrack is on occasions, there have been people who have come to me and have suggested that the Holy Spirit is not a person. They've suggested the Holy Spirit is just a force. Now, if you haven't met people like that, then sooner or later you will. It's probably just a matter of time. Let me point out to you something in this particular passage because it's almost like in this passage that John has recognised that this is a deception that may arise. And so he said, okay, how can I make it as plain as possible so that nobody will ever misunderstand who the Holy Spirit is, that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. Notice the personal language, how be it when he... Do we refer to an inanimate force or power, say like electricity? Do we refer to the electricity as he? No, we don't. We refer to a person as he. Is this the only time in the passage that John says this? No? 
Watch as we go through. How be it when he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. I think I counted 10 times as I went through that passage. 10 times that the person of the Holy Spirit is mentioned in one short passage of Scripture. And so here we are talking about the third person of the Godhead. The Bible says, first of all, he's going to teach us the truth, then he's going to guide us in truth. And then if we go back a few verses right here, in verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient or best for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So here we have the third major function of the Holy Spirit. So let's take a look at this for a moment. The first thing that the Bible says the Holy Spirit is going to do is that he is going to teach us the truth. Then he's going to guide us in the truth and then he's going to convict us of sin. So it's a little bit like this. Imagine that we are walking on a path and as we are walking on this path, it is the Holy Spirit who teaches us where we need to be. In other words, he comes and he teaches us the truth. And so as we walk along on the path, the Holy Spirit is guiding us along the path. Well, what happens if we step off of the path? The Bible said he is there to convict you of sin. So in other words, he's there to get you back on the path. You see, the Holy Spirit is here for one reason alone, and that is to do everything that he possibly can to get you into heaven. This is what God is all about. God has one agenda in mind for every single person here, and that is to see you saved and in heaven. And so he's going to do everything he can. Jesus came to this earth and Jesus gave his life. The Holy Spirit is here on this earth. He never leaves and he will be with you to prompt you all the way down through to the end of time to give your life to God. That's his work and that is his function. So what happens then? If the point is ever reached that the Holy Spirit ceases to speak to a person. So let's say that you are um, in a particular place and the Holy Spirit starts to teach you the truth. The Holy Spirit starts to guide you into truth. You step out of it and the Holy Spirit starts to convict you that you need to get back into it. And what happens if you ignore that? You know, if we go back in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6... We find an example of this actually taking place. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, where God looked down on this world. And in verse 3, the Bible says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. And so the question that comes up is this. Did God just arbitrarily draw a line in the sand and say, okay, 120 years, any time after that, that's it. It's all over. If you haven't given your life to me, I'm flooding the world and you are wiped out. Does God operate that way? No, God does not operate in an arbitrary manner like that. You see, 
The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish. He is long-suffering. He is patient toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what was actually going on here that God said, look, my Holy Spirit is not going to be here forever. 120 years he's going to strive with men, and then it's going to be over. Now we know that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, didn't he? Praise God. And so the Holy Spirit didn't leave entirely, but the Holy Spirit stopped speaking to a whole generation of people. And do you know the Bible says, Luke chapter 17, Matthew chapter 24, at the end of time it will be just the same. As it was in the days of Noah. That's how the Bible describes the end of time. So if we're going to understand the days in which we live, we then need to look back at the days of Noah and we need to understand, well, what was it that was going on there? How were those people lost? Psalms, chapter 100 and 19. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. Verse 105, it says this, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my what? Path. What is the purpose of a path? The purpose of a path is to walk on, isn't that so? Now, the Holy Spirit is there to teach us the truth. So let's say the Holy Spirit comes to you and starts to teach you the truth and you block your ears and you say, no, I don't want to hear the truth. Or let's say the Holy Spirit is there to guide us in the truth and you say, okay, I've heard the truth, I know the truth, but I don't want to be guided, I don't want to walk on that path. What happens if we step off the path and we block our ears? Now the Holy Spirit is going to be there the whole way through, prompting and poking our conscience and telling each one of us, We need to be back on the path. Isn't that how it works? That's what the Bible says, that his job and his function is. The function of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to repentance, bring us to the point where we want and desire to confess our sins, to make our lives right with Jesus Christ. What happens to something that you persistently refuse to acknowledge? You know, it's a law of the mind that what we persistently refuse to acknowledge, our mind shuts off to, doesn't it? I'm going to give you a couple of examples of it. But let's look at first a number of ways in which we can shut ourselves off from the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Page 473. And here it says this. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. The first way we can start down the path of committing the unpardonable sin is to grieve the Holy Spirit. You see, it's the Holy Spirit that seals us for the day of redemption. Then if we go to another passage of the Bible, if we turn our Bibles over to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29. The Bible says here, 
Of how much sore a punishment suppose you shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite. In other words, despised the Spirit of grace. And so here the Bible speaks about somebody who has received the changing power of God into their life. They have been sanctified, they have been made holy by the power of the Holy Spirit and then they despise the Holy Spirit. They walk away from God. That's a rather serious thing to do, wouldn't you say? Does the Holy Spirit come to call that person to get them back on the path? Absolutely, and we've seen a testimony of that just this afternoon, haven't we? Wasn't that wonderful? Praise God that God is there to prompt us, get back on the path, get back on the path. That's what it's all about. But despising the Holy Spirit is a dangerous thing, and despising the Holy Spirit starts us on that pathway towards committing the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 7 and verse 51. Acts chapter 7 and verse 51. And here Stephen speaks to a group of people who did commit the unpardonable sin. And he says this, he says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. So the third way is to resist the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, we can despise the Holy Spirit, and we can resist the Holy Spirit. You see, friends, it is a dangerous thing to cut ourselves off from our only means of salvation. You see, without the Holy Spirit to tell us our need of repentance, is there anything to direct us towards repentance? Without the Holy Spirit to direct us in the area of confessing our sins, is there anything to tell us to confess our sins? You see, the Holy Spirit works through you through your conscience. And when your conscience speaks to you, that is the voice of God speaking to you through the power of His Holy Spirit. But what happens if you can no longer hear the voice of your conscience anymore? Is there any connection now with God? You see, if you resist, the Holy Spirit is sometimes like a thorn. You get a, a, a bindi thorn in your foot and it sticks there and it's in your shoe and every time you go to walk on it, it aggravates you. And you hate that. This is an awful thing. And the Holy Spirit can be like a thorn at times when you step away from God because he's there to prompt you. You need to, he's like always poking You need to get back to God. It's a reminder. You need to get back to God. But if you persistently refuse to hear it, sooner or later, what will develop? A whole bunch of scar tissue until you can't hear it anymore. That's a dangerous point to reach. Because when you can no longer hear the Holy Spirit, God has no longer any access to you. It's a little bit like a ship that sinks and people pile into the lifeboat and the lifeboat is full and they can't put any more in and there's still somebody swimming in the water. And they throw him a rope and say, here, hang on to the rope and we will take you to shore. That man's only connection with salvation is that piece of rope. What happens if he lets go of the rope? 
He has let go of his only means of salvation. And if we despise the Holy Spirit, resist and grieve the Holy Spirit, we can cut ourselves off imperceptibly from our only means of salvation. A week or so ago, I'll give you an illustration. A week or so ago, my next door neighbours decided that they were going to work in their garden. And so they decided that they were going to put some really nice things in their garden to make their garden grow well. Do you know what it was? It was chicken manure. And their garden was right outside my bedroom window. And I like to sleep with my window open and the fresh air blowing in. And so when I opened my window, I was like, oh, oh. I told my next door neighbours I was going to preach about them tonight. So my end of the house attained this interesting odour. Now, the interesting thing about that was that when I would get up in the morning and some of the other people that were staying in the same house would comment on the smell down the other end of the house, I couldn't smell it at all. (laughs) Couldn't smell a thing. Why couldn't I smell it anymore? The answer is very simple. What the mind persistently resists, it ceases to perceive. And you would say, well, you got used to it. I got used to it. I couldn't smell it anymore. It's exactly the same with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit prods your conscience and you resist the Holy Spirit. Sooner or later, you can't hear the Holy Spirit anymore. You now have nothing to connect you to Jesus Christ. So let's look at a number of different ways that we can cut ourselves off from Jesus Christ. The first way, and this is probably, I would say few people go down this path, Proverbs chapter 28, let's turn over there, verse 13. And this is the group who say, I don't want to be saved. It's as simple as that. I don't want to be bothered with God or the Bible. And unfortunately, there are people like that in our world. Proverbs chapter 23, and we will go down to verse 13. No, Is it 28 and verse 13, is it? Well, there you go. Wow, you must have looked at my notes. He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. And so there are some people in our world today who very, very sadly say, okay, that's it. Don't want to know about God. Don't want to know about the Bible. Don't want to know anything about it. And they resist, they despise, they cut themselves off and they grieve the Holy Spirit. That's a dangerous thing to do, but it doesn't apply to anybody here who is in this room tonight, does it? And so we can sit here and say, well, you know, why bother even having this particular subject? We all want to be saved, right? Everybody here wants to go to heaven, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. So let's look at a second group. And the second group can cut a little bit closer to home for us because as those who wait... Putting it off until tomorrow, they linger past the point of no return. And once again, I am reminded of the antediluvians, those who lived before the flood. 
And here you have the most bizarre situation taking place where the dumb animals go onto the ark and the highly intelligent race of the antediluvians, they all stand on the outside and they look, oh, look at all those animals going onto the ark, and none of them go on. I mean, you would have to stop and think, something strange is going on here. I haven't seen anything like this before. What is it that is taking place? Maybe I should go on as well. But they're thinking, well, you know, I'll go on tomorrow. I can't see it in it raining. It's never rained before. We get the thick dew. That's how we get water on the earth. So why should I go on right now? There's a big boat sitting in the middle of nowhere. The time came that the door closed. And once the door closed, that was it. They did not realise that their probation had closed. You see, you can commit the unpardonable sin without realising it. In fact, it's the only way you can commit the unpardonable sin. However, there is a third group that I'm even more concerned about than those who linger, and I'm very concerned about those who linger. And this is one of the main reasons why I do this presentation. The third member, the third group, and possibly the largest, are church members. And you sit back and say, well, how can that be possible? How can it be possible that church members are in danger of committing the unpardonable sin? And it comes down to this one thing. So few people realize that truth is progressive. Many people today, in fact, the Bible describes the church in our day as rich and increased with goods and in want of nothing. We sit back, we relax in our church, we think, well, praise God, I've given my life to Jesus, that's it, it's all over, I don't need to worry about anything else again. But the Bible says, thy word is a what? A lamp to my feet and a light to my what? To my path. Why do we make a path? Do we make a path so that we can stand on it? No, we don't make a path so that we can stand on it. The purpose of a path is to walk on that path. Isn't that so? That's why we make a path. Truth, my friends, is progressive. So what happens if we are walking along the path? The Bible says, your word is a lamp to my feet. So the word of God is there and it is guiding us. As we walk along the path, God's word is guiding us all the way along that path. What happens if we stop? Does God's word stop? No, God's word keeps progressing because it's trying to lead us to Jesus Christ, closer and closer to Jesus Christ. What happens if we fall off the path? Whereabouts are we then? We're in darkness, aren't we? The danger that we have as Christians is stopping on the path, sitting down on the path and relaxing because we are rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing. You know, some time ago, in fact, a long time ago, I had an alarm clock and it wasn't a nice, pretty alarm clock like this one. It was a man's alarm clock. I smashed the face off it. But it still worked. I couldn't kill it. I tried a few times and it had the most insidious, horrible sound you can imagine. It would, it would, it would start off like this. It'd start off with this little... And there's a little... And it would build up and build up. And going... The first time I ever heard this thing go off, I've sat, 
bolt upright in bed. My heart's going thunk, 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 thunk. Uh, I was uh, like, whoa. And you see now why that alarm clock got rather beat up. Because if you're like in the middle of the night, you'd be trying to find it, you'd get dropped on the floor and smashed and broken and all over the place. But it never stopped working. And, and, and the next time it went off, I'm laying in bed waiting for it to go off thinking, oh, I know it's going to go off. I know. Have you ever done that? And then it starts with this, and it's going, ah, quick, shut it off before it goes off. It was a terrible thing. Now, I hated that alarm clock because it meant I had to get up, and I didn't like getting up. I liked to sleep in. And so after a while, I got a little bit used to it. And once I got a little bit used to it, I hear it go off, and like, oh, there it goes, yeah, there it goes. Okay, shut it off, time to get up. You know, I'm not, I'm not bolt upright out of bed anymore, am I? No. Do you know that by persistent resistance of that alarm clock, I reached the point where I could sleep straight through it? (laughs) It's a little bit like the Holy Spirit. Persistent resistance of the Holy Spirit, and you can reach the point where you can sleep straight through it that's a dangerous thought when you stop and think about it, isn't it? Particularly when we realise that there was once a time in the history of our world when the population of the entire planet outside of eight people had that experience. God did not come down and draw an arbitrary line in the sand and say, okay, after 120 years, that's it, I'm just going to flood the world ready or not. God looked down at the world and he said, 120 years, there's only going to be eight people left on this planet that I can even speak to. So I'm going to flood the world and I'll save those eight people and I'll start over again. That's why the Bible says this, when this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a witness unto all nations, then shall the end come. God is not going to close probation. God is not going to close the opportunity for salvation arbitrarily here on this earth. God does not act like that. But when every person has made their last decision either for or against Christ, then he closes probation, comes back to this earth and finishes it all off. While there's still the opportunity for salvation, he waits. But God is going to bring this world to the point of decision. There's going to be a crisis in the near future, a crisis as we look towards the second coming of Jesus that will bring this world to the point of decision. The question that we have to ask ourselves in relationship to the unpardonable sin is really very simple. Are we moving along the path? Jesus says this, Walk while you have the light. Because if you don't, the light will go out or the light will continue to move on and you will be left in darkness. Truth is progressive and God calls us when we learn new truth to progress with that truth. The Bible speaks about the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. In the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, you have... A very simple parable. We find it in Matthew chapter 25. Let's turn over there very quickly. We'll work through this quickly here this evening. It's a most important subject. Matthew chapter 25, it is a parable of God's church. What does a woman symbolize in Bible prophecy? 
A church and a virgin woman, God's church. Matthew chapter 25, we have 10 virgins, 10, a symbol of the whole world. You have 10 toes, 10 horns, 10 virgins, 10 kings, etc. Symbol of the whole world. Then shall the kingdom, then being the end of time, then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto 10 virgins. So at the end of time, God's church in the whole world, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Who is the bridegroom? That's Jesus Christ. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And while the bridegroom tarried, what did they all do? They all went to sleep. It says all, right? Yeah? So that includes all of us right here. They've gone to meet the bridegroom. That's Jesus. Jesus is coming back. And just before the return of Jesus, they've all gone to sleep. Isn't that so? But then at midnight, a cry comes, Behold, the bridegroom comes, go you out to meet him. They all trimmed their lamps. And the virgins that had extra oil were asked by the virgins that didn't bring any spare oil, Can you give us some of your oil? For our lamps have gone out. Now the Bible says, Your word is a lamp. So we know what the lamp is a symbol of, right? The lamp is a symbol of the Word of God. What is the oil inside that lamp a symbol of? The Holy Spirit. So here's what we find. We find ten virgins. They all have the Word of God. They all have the Holy Spirit. But as it turns out, half of them are lost. Is that a serious parable right there? That's a very serious parable. Let's consider the implications of it here for just a moment. Did they all believe in Jesus Christ? They wouldn't have gone out to meet him if they didn't. Did they all have the gift of the Holy Spirit? Yes, they did because they all had oil in their lamps. Did they all know the word of God? Yes, because they're all carrying lamps. Had they all obeyed the word of God? The word of God said, behold, the bridegroom comes, go you out to meet him. They all go out? Yes, so they were obedient. Were they confidently expecting the bridegroom to arrive? Yes, they were. Absolutely, all 10 of them were. All of them were virgins. They were all part of God's people. All of them recognized the signs. They all, heard the, they all heard the cry go out. Behold, the bridegroom comes, go you out to meet him. And all of them woke up. Do you know, do you know something right here? The five foolish virgins are not hypocrites. They're actually living what they believe, aren't they? They all wanted to be taken to heaven because the Bible says they came and knocked on the door and they said, Lord, let us in. God said, Behold, I never knew you. And so this is a very serious parable that God gives to us right here. A parable that identifies for us the danger that we can be in even when we are in church of not recognizing the fact that truth is progressive and that as God asks us to progress with that truth, that we can come right down to the end of time and be found unready. Why? Because we stopped moving along the path and as we stopped moving along the path, the light gradually went out until there was no oil left. Everything else is there. We know the word of God. We have it right there in our hands. But we've run out of the Holy Spirit because we have resisted the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit has revealed to us our duty to God. It reminds me of the story of a great eagle 
in the United States. Flying over a river, he looks down and he saw a big chunk of ice floating down the river. My wife comes from uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin. For nine months of the year, it's a land of snow and ice. He saw a big chunk of ice flowing down the river and on that ice was a dead fish. And so there was a free feed. So he flew down, landed on that iceberg and started to eat the fish. Now this particular river was flowing directly towards Niagara Falls. He sat there comfortably on top of that piece of ice, eating his fish, seeing the falls coming up, knowing that he was a bird. Why did he have to fear the waterfall? There was only one small problem. Imperceptibly, without him realising it, his talons became frozen into the ice. There's lots of people watching because there's always a lot of tourists at Niagara Falls and they see him coming down there and just before that iceberg goes over the edge, he stretches his wings and goes to fly away and nothing happened. He had lingered. He had waited too long. He knew what he needed to do, but that fish just tasted so good And he waited too long and over the edge he went and was destroyed. Friends, there is a danger in putting off, responding to the voice of God. And you might wonder, why is it that I come to you in my last presentation here and bring up a serious subject such as this one? It's because I do not want to see anybody go over the edge of that waterfall. I care for all of you here. I want to be together with every single one of you here in heaven. But there is somebody who cares for you much more than what I could ever care for you. His name is Jesus Christ. He came to this earth. He gave his life. I know I've said it every night and I can't stop saying it because Jesus loves us so much. He gave his life so that we can have eternal life and he calls to us this evening. And whatever it might be in our life, I don't know what it is. I don't know you, but God does. And God speaks to your heart this evening. And he might say, well, it might be this in your life or it might be that in your life or it might be something else in your life. Something in your life where you hear the voice of God prompting you and saying, this is something that you need to do. This is your duty to God. This is how you need to follow Jesus Christ. My question to you this evening is this. As you listen to the voice of God right now, speaking to you. Because what you're hearing through your ears, that might be me. But what you feel in your heart, that's not me. That's God speaking. What is God asking you to do? And how are you going to respond? I've been here night after night. I presented Jesus Christ. He's my Lord, he's my Saviour, 
He's my friend. He wants the same for you. If there is anybody here who has not yet given their life to Jesus Christ, this evening is the time to make that decision. If there's anybody here who has not yet made a decision to give their life to Jesus Christ and to move in the direction of preparing for baptism, then tonight is the time to make that decision. If there is anybody here who has something else in their life, whatever it might be, that God has spoken to your heart and God has convicted you about, right now is the time to make that decision, to be fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. And so this evening, as God speaks to your hearts, who here will make a commitment with me to not hold back on anything, but to respond to Jesus with whatever he's asking me to do or us to do right now. So whatever God is saying to your heart at this moment, you will say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you in that commitment. That's the commitment that I'm making. This is a serious one. Who else will make that commitment with me right now? as God speaks to your heart. Well, praise God, friends, for the opportunity of being able to surrender all to him. If there is anybody here this evening who would like to talk to me about giving your life to Jesus Christ, if there is anybody here who would like to talk to me about preparing for baptism because of that decision, come and see me immediately after we finish here with prayer. Let us bow our heads. Father in heaven, We thank you for the incredible love that you have for us. It boggles our mind that you could care so much for us. But we know that you love us. We know that you speak to us and that you're doing all that you can to get us into heaven. Father, we pray that every one of us here this evening will respond to that voice. As you speak to us right now, we will not wait until it is too late but we will make that decision right now. Father, I want to thank you for those who have made decisions. I don't know what the decisions are, but if they've made those decisions here this evening, strengthen them in those decisions. And Lord, if there is anybody here who you are speaking to and they have not yet made a decision, they have not yet surrendered to you, Father, I pray that you give them no peace until they do. It is so dangerous to resist your Holy Spirit. I pray that nobody here will. And so we pray for your blessing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 02 4973 3456.
You heard Jamie George, Hallelujah, What a Saviour. Before that, Sarah Draggett, I Have a Redeemer.